Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. A $4.7 billion jury verdict against Johnson & Johnson in July helped to trigger the company's biggest annual share loss in a decade. The sixth highest jury award ever in a product defect case highlighted the potential costs ahead in the litigation over its iconic baby powder. But how much of that verdict will J&J actually have to pay? Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, tell us about the case and the verdict. Yeah, sure. So um, the verdict was reached uh, this past July, and of course it was just upheld this past December. And essentially what it found was both liability on the part of Johnson & Johnson, and uh, of course it assessed punitive damages in addition to the regular compensatory damages in the case. That's where the lion's share of that $4.7 billion came from. Uh, That would be shared over 22 uh, plaintiffs. It was a class action brought by a number of women who uh, purported to have suffered ovarian cancer as a result of asbestos in the baby powder. So, Bob, you often hear about these enormous jury verdicts, and then years Mm -hmm. later you hear that they've been reversed or dramatically Mm -hmm. cut down. What happens in between the verdict and the lowering of the amount? Various things happen, but typically prominent among them are numerous appeals, right? So typically the the defendant in a case like this, in order to have had punitive damages of this size assessed against it in the first place, it has to, by definition, to be a very large firm with lots of resources. So it's typically able to hire all sorts of uh, high-priced lawyers and to sort of drag on the litigation through various appeals for a lengthy period of time. And during that time, sometimes the resources of the plaintiffs run out. Uh, They become demoralized, perhaps, or they decide ultimately to settle for something less, just if for no other reason than just to sort of get the litigation behind them and bring closure to the case. Bob, why shouldn't the trial judge and the jury be the final arbiters of what a verdict should be if the essential judgment is not reversed? Well, it's not. I mean, I can tell you what the the typical reason is it's given. It's not clear to me that it's actually a compelling reason. And in consequence, I think there's actually a better reason that ought to be talked about. So the Putative reason, right? The reason you typically hear is that, well, the thought is that these jurors are kind of irrational. Their emotions get the better of them because the case is so sympathetic uh, or the case is so dramatic or the harm suffered by the plaintiff is so dramatic that, you know, they really seem to deserve some kind of extra compensation or there's extreme indignation at the defendant or, or what have you. And the thought is that that can be irrational. And so it's up to the appellate court to sort of correct for that irrationality. Again, I don't think that's a particularly compelling argument, typically, if for no other reason than that the trial judge uh, who presides over these things usually is clear-headed. That's kind of what the judge is meant to be. So you know what I think is really going on in cases like this is it's essentially there's an ambivalence about punitive damages that stems from a certain ambiguity about punitive damages, right? So this is a really 
key point, I think, for the public to bear in mind. When you sue somebody, right, you're suing them, first of all, to be compensated for what actual harm you've suffered, right? And that's what we call the compensatory damages. The punitive damages are meant to be an extra punishment against the defendant to sort of change their incentives so that they'll be more careful next time. But you'll note that that second rationale has nothing to do with the plaintiff. It's all about the incentives of the defendant. And so many see a huge punitive damages award like that awarded to a plaintiff as being a windfall for the plaintiff because they're not really compensating the plaintiff. That's what the compensatory damages do. They're just about penalizing the defendant. And so there's ever since, I think, because of that kind of dual role, you might say, that punitive damages play, that they're awarded to plaintiffs on the one hand, but they're really just about defendant incentives on the other hand. We've always, as a a culture, been ambivalent about punitives, and I think that's why they're vulnerable. Bob, J&J is facing close to 12,000 talc-related cases. Bloomberg Intelligence reports that it may have to cough up as much as $20 billion in settlements to resolve all the cases. How does a company decide which cases to settle and when and which to keep on fighting? It's a pretty complicated calculus, June, as you might imagine. Right? There are many, many factors that have to be sort of factored into the decision. One of the factors, of course, is just how strong the case looks, right? Does it look as though there's a compelling case against the company, or does it have a pretty good defense to be sort of spoken for? Another is how sympathetic are the plaintiffs or the victims, right? Are they, are they the sorts of people who jurors are likely to sympathize with, or are they, you know, kind of bad guys, too, or something, you know? Uh, that's another another thing. Uh, another consideration is how well-resourced the plaintiffs or the classes of plaintiffs are. How long does it look like they can go on with protracted litigation involving multiple appeals? And then another factor, of course, is where are these various plaintiffs located? Because as we know, some courts in some states tend to be more plaintiff-friendly, and other courts in other states sometimes develop reputations for being more defendant-friendly. So there's you know a variety of factors like that. I've, I've only begun to scratch the surface. There are quite a few more as well. For example, what law firm is helping the plaintiffs, or what law firms, or which lawyers are helping the plaintiffs, right? And how good are the lawyers that the defendant thinks that it can retain? Um, so all of those things kind of factor into it, and in consequence, it's hard to develop any single algorithm to sort of predict which cases are likely to be appealed or dragged out uh, and which ones are not. I guess that's why they call it complex litigation. Indeed. (laughs) Thanks so much, Bob. Have a great weekend. That's Robert Hockett. He's a professor at Cornell Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.